This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Five-hour tea with caffeine from green tea leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five-hour tea. Caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight. From the makers of five-hour energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. Calm. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Banff Valley, coming at you this time without my co-host Andy Bailey. We are, however, pleased, or I, however, am pleased to be joined by the NBA Math Crew. We have founder and editor in chief. Adam Frommel, along with technical director Arjun Barawaj. Did I, did I fuck that up again? You had fucked up. <laughs> All right, close enough. That was so. That, that was definitely a little off. <laughs> can I get your? I tried to do this the first it's, time you were on. What was the correct pronunciation? It's Bardwaj. Bardwaj. Arjun Bardwaj, who's a fantastic technical director, despite what I tell him in the Slack room. Um, we're here aside to yell at each other to talk about the biggest five-hour tea with caffeine from green tea leaves it's delicious energizing and comes in three amazing flavors with zero sugar and four calories it fits your life with its compact size and portability it goes where you go to the campsite the hiking trail the beach without weighing you down five-hour tea Caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight from the makers of Five Hour Energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. I guess disappointments or panic starts and decide whether we need to chill or should actually panic over what's been going on. So before we get started, I just want to say how is the MBA math administrative crew doing tonight? Well, so to be clear, are we talking about the most disappointing pieces within the NBA math team or the actual NBA? Well, if we want to start there, but I don't really want to spend 60 minutes talking about Arjun, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was going to say Dan, but I guess that would be another option. This is just a great glimpse behind the curtains right now. (laughs) Right. I mean, our writers do think that I'm on vacation all the time, so I guess I would be the most disappointing. I am the resident (laughs) ghost. Someone has to be. Um... Anyway, so I think a good place to start would be the Cleveland Cavaliers, and should we be panicking or chilling over what has been a, a just a terrible start, I guess? I mean, their offense barely ranks in the top half of points scored per 100 possessions, which is not okay, especially when their defense 
uh, hovers around the bottom five in points scored per 100 uh, points allowed per 100 possessions. Excuse me. So I'm wondering. I'll throw it to Adam first. Are you gonna? Can you manufacture any panic for the Cavaliers this early in the regular season, or is this a chillax situation? I mean, how many times have we been down this road before? It seems like every season with a LeBron James team, like there's some panic meter during the regular season, and then they turn it up at the end of the year and are fine in the playoffs and coast through the finals. And I don't think there's any reason to think this is going to be any different. Like this team has a lot of new pieces. It's dealing with pretty key injuries. I mean, regardless of how you feel about Derrick Rose at this stage of his career, like it's still not exactly ideal when he's injured as well. And you have to start Jose Calderon and then bump LeBron to the point. Like there, there are just a lot of factors here that aren't going to hold true throughout the entire season. And ultimately they have LeBron. So no, I'm not even the least bit worried. What do you think, Arjun? I'm right there with Adam. And that last point, they have LeBron. And in the in the new fangled uh, NBA East, Eastern Conference, which is just straight garbage, not worried about the Cavs long-term. Um, I think they'll figure things out with their lineups. I think getting Crowder in more and Wade and Rose in less as the course of the season goes on, I think they're going to be completely fine. And again, LeBron James. And the offense is going to be just fine because of LeBron James and Isaiah Thomas. If he gets healthy, is is the kind of point guard they kind of need because their other playmakers can't really score off the ball. Uh, I do want to point out Derrick Rose, team team low net rating of minus 13.2 entering their game tonight. I think we all could have predicted that. The thing that's been a little shocking, I know they've tinkered a lot with their lineups, particularly in the starting lineup, but their two most used lineups right now are just getting destroyed like on both ends of the floor. They're being outscored by at least 19 points per 100 possessions, both of them. We're talking about what should be the best team in the East, and they don't have that complementary talent right now. And I don't know, until you hash out a definitive rotation where you're going to oust some of these guys, are you still going to play Derrick Rose when Isaiah Thomas comes back? Because I'm of the mind that you probably shouldn't. So they kind of have to balance that out, which would lead me to the question of, is there a point during the regular season that we should be concerned with the Cavaliers playing crappy basketball I think if it continues once everybody is returning to health once Isaiah Thomas is back on the court or even if he's not and everybody continues to look like they've just fallen off a cliff and that's been the other big factor here is that everybody is slumping simultaneously except for LeBron like Wade is better than he's playing right now I have no idea why Kevin Love has done his disappearing act again I mean this isn't going to continue unless it does and that's when we get worried you got anything to add to that, Arjun? No, nah, I mean Adam. Adam said it right. It's it. If this keeps going, like once all the pieces are there, once the lineups actually gotten to a spot where they're happy, uh, then then we're then we've got a problem. But it, I I can't imagine that this continues, especially with uh, when Isaiah Thomas comes back, or if rather. It almost feels like if, if. you're whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That was bold, but it, it almost feels like if you're pressing the panic button with this Cavaliers team right now, like you've been in a coma for the last five years. Well, well, your day, hopefully, your day, I guess, back to LeBron's Miami days. Yeah, okay, yeah, so I, I would, I agree with what everything you guys said. Um, which I think now we can move on to the other formality uh, on this list that we're going to churn through, 
and that's the Golden State Warriors, specifically their defense, because right now they lead the NBA in offensive efficiency by nearly an eight-point margin. They're pumping. That's in. the best adjusted mark ever. But I don't even. I I don't know what you say. Like there, there's a, like a smaller gap between. Uh, like 26th place and second place right now or something crazy like that. that that's just absurd. Their defense, however, uh, ranks 26th in points allowed per 100 possessions, which is weird because they're a very good defensive team, and that's kind of the side of the ball where they get underrated most, I would think. I'm wondering if you guys are at all worried about that eight, eight games uh, through the season, and I'll throw it to Arjun first this time so that he can't ride Adam's coattails once again. <laughs> um, that's pretty much how this NBA math thing's gone so far. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I don't think, I don't think we really need to be worried. I mean, they still have one of the top three, if not top one, defensive players in the league right now. Um, I, I'm, I'm not concerned long term, right? That, that this team isn't going to figure it out. Uh, between, between Durant just. Durant, their size, and Jordan Bell coming alive too. Um, I'm I'm not worried at all about this de- this defense. What, what yeah, I don't I don't see any reason we really need to be here either. And I think it really comes down to motivation here. Like they've won two titles in the last three years. They know they're the best team in the league. Why exactly are they going to get worked up to play all out on defense every night? I mean, the biggest thing is that they're just not contesting shots quite as well. What made this defense so special? throughout the last couple of years is that they they depressed every opponent's field goal percentage and effective field goal percentage whenever they played them. And this year they rank 19th in effective field goal percentage allowed, which isn't going to stay true as the sample grows larger and as they start to actually try a little bit more. I mean, it's it's a sleepwalking thing more than anything else. It's a, it's a, a trial and error period where they're playing Patrick McCall more and they're playing Jordan Bell more. And just trying to figure out what they have, what they can do, what they can do differently to get every possible advantage they can. So as soon as they need to play good defense, they're going to. We saw it in that Clippers win the other night. They just turned it on for three quarters. And is this, and I'm curious to find out where other people stand on this, do you think it might also have something to do with the fact that Steve Kerr just wants to empty his bench every single night? It seems they're going to go at least 10 deep and probably closer to 12 every night. And I'm just wondering when you're going through all that like hodgepodge rotations and he's even deactivating a guy like Jordan Bell one night so that he can get other players into the fold, whether that impacts, I don't want to say defensive effort, but just defensive execution in general. And it might even impact their offensive execution. We just can't tell because their players are too damn good. No one has any thoughts on that. I, I thought Arjun had thoughts, but apparently he doesn't. I, I mean, I'm passing the buck here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't really have any thoughts on that. I mean, that's basically, basically, I think everyone's on the same page here. This I defense is going to figure I'm, it out. Championship the only thing I'm hangover. really concerned about is defensive rebounding. They're dead last in defensive rebounding percentage, and that might actually be somewhat of an exploitable flaw just because they like to play small so much. And if you're going to draw them out on the perimeter and take advantage of their lack of size, like that's one reason, but it still doesn't explain why they're allowing so many points per possession. They're just giving up more possessions. Also, does Aaron Baines deserve any MVP votes for putting the basically putting the Warriors fourth in defensive rebounding percentage right now? I, like that's the addition that had to swing things. I don't think you look at that team and say we talk about the Celtics need size all the time, and they they almost depleted their size a little bit by starting Baines and Horford together the other night. But 
Their defensive rebounding has been good. This is not a let's celebrate the good podcast, though, so we will move on. We are not panicking about the Cavaliers or the Warriors. I'm trying to think if there's anyone that we know. Right, let's go to something where we should panic. I'm going to say the Nuggets offense. Uh, I would panic over, at least. Uh, as people have pointed out countless times on Twitter, we probably didn't talk enough about the departure of Chris Finch, who was largely responsible for constructing that dual big offense that just worked so well. Some of this could also be that teams have had some extra time to scout Jokic. Uh, I talked about this with Andy on the other podcast. Maybe we overrated just the initial chemistry that Paul Millsap and Nikola Jokic would have because they like to play in the same spots and they both really like to have the ball. And while Millsap has been kind of serviceable from the three-point line, his efficiency from there leading into his time with Denver, it had been on the downward slope in Atlanta, and maybe we overestimated the role that Atlanta's weird, clunky spacing at, at times had uh, on that because he's shooting under 32% from beyond the arc this season. So I'll throw this one to Adam, uh, who is in Denver, and hopefully has some strong thoughts on whether we should be panicking or just relaxing over what's going on with the Nuggets offense. I'm going to very strongly sit on the fence here. Um, I, I don't. I don't think we can. We can really go either direction yet because, like you said, with Finch, there are, there are factors that tended to get overlooked this offseason. That was one. Danilo Gallinari leaving is a big deal because of his versatility and what he brought to the offense. And then we seem to just overlook that they don't really have a point guard. You know, Jamal Murray isn't there yet. His shooting has been off. It's starting to get a little bit better. Emmanuel Moutier hasn't made the strides there. And I still have no idea why they got rid of Jameer Nelson, who probably would have been their best pure point guard for Richard Jefferson when he's not going to play. He's played so exactly all those two minutes since they did that, by the way. What a, yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> it's bizarre. But, I mean, I think those factors matter a lot, and there's going to be some growing pains um, with, with Millsap and Jokic. And opponents are just adjusting to the, the backdoor cuts that they throw so much. You saw it a lot in the Hornets game the other night where Dwight Howard would keep dropping back just a little bit to throw people off. Uh, you know, just almost bumping them off of their routes. And it just when everything's based on timing, like those those subtle movements gum up a lot of the offensive sets. But at the same time, there's so much talent here, and we know how good Jokic is on offense. And he's he's been quite good since a, a pretty tough start to the season, that once Gary Harris starts knocking down shots and they get a little bit better play out of the point guards and everyone gets chemistry, like this is still going to be a really good offense. It's not going to be number one in the league. The Warriors have pretty much seen to that already. But I don't think we need to worry about it being like a bottom half offense or anything. They do rank third over their last two games in offensive efficiency in the league. They've thrown in 114 point plus points per 100 possessions, which two games is two games. But my and I'll throw it to Arjun now. Is this a team though that we've seen their defensive rating kind of depress when they've played good offense? Does this team have the personnel, Arjun, to be good? or close to average on both sides of the floor, where if they're going to throw out their offensive heavy units, are they going to have those guys who can make them or help them survive on the defensive end and vice versa? Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to start hitting the panic button on this one. Uh, I know last year, <laughs> yeah, uh, last, last year the Nuggets were, were big-time half-court offenses, or had a big-time uh, half-court offense. Uh, this year I think they're 29th in, uh, in half-court offense rating, uh, which is... Isn't great. Uh, <laughs> and, I would say it's probably not uh, great. Yeah, losing losing Gallinari, I think, is a big deal. Uh, and and having uh, and I what what I think on every single play type, right? We had we had uh, Gallinari positive, 
uh, last year. So, right. so that's that's on both sides of the court that that you just lost that that elite or efficient, elitely efficient player. Um, and then also inserting Jamal Murray. I'm not a Jamal Murray fan, uh, and having him in the lineup now, I can't see that being positive going forward. They need a they need a new point guard. Paging Eric Bledsoe. <laughs> I get yes, please. the other thing for me, and I, I'm curious to see what Adam thinks about this. The only way that their wing situation made any semblance of sense after you lose Gallinari and you kind of stockpile all these four fives was if you think you're going to turn a Malik Beasley loose, and they just they haven't this year. Juan Hernan Gomez is dealing with Mono, a guy that they were basically trying to turn into a wing or at least a Gallinari-ish type player. And he just still barely sees the floor. I don't even know that he, he doesn't even have 50 minutes to his name this season. And I, why not just throw him in there to see if you can get some extra wing depth? Because you know what your point guard situation is right now. It's not great. Like, Jameer Nelson's gone. You have to rely on Moutier, who's been an okay shooter, but I don't think you want him running an NBA offense necessarily. Jamal Murray, has his shooting percentages are in the toilet, and he's still learning the ropes as a floor general. So at, why not at least experiment where you can or explore depth where you can on the wings with Malik Beasley, I, I don't necessarily understand. I don't necessarily understand either, especially because he's looked pretty good whenever he's gotten on the floor. There were two games in a row where he got double-digit minutes and made some nice shots and held his own on defense. Like He looked the part of a rotation player for those brief spurts, and then he gets buried on the bench again. I, I think that, that Juan Hernan Gomez is a big loss, and they need him to get healthy again just because you know, he was the fail-safe option at the three. And when you lose that, like, there are, there are no other options here. <laughs> so, I mean, if you look at their depth chart, there legitimately are not options. No, so, yeah, I mean, I think that this is a team that needs a trade. But it's a weird situation where needing a trade doesn't necessarily mean you have to fully panic. Would you trade for Kent Bazemore for this team? I've asked you this on the side before. What am I giving up? Uh, Kenneth Fareed and another contract. I think Kenneth Fareed and Darrell Arthur. Would you do for Kent Bazemore? Probably, but I would be concerned about doing it because Fareed has been really impactful on this team. His energy means so much off the bench, and he's kind of bought into this role and is playing really solid basketball on both ends. So I don't. I wish that I didn't have to give him up, but I think that the need at the three is more pressing. And he also views himself as a starter, which he wouldn't be in Atlanta, I don't think. I'm wondering if that causes any long-term issues. And it's not like he's played a lot this season. He's His last his last four games, under four minutes, under 12 minutes, did not play under four minutes. It's been bizarre as well. I, I have a lot of questions about what Mike Malone does with this rotation. Um, so Adam is not panicking. Arjun and I are both panicking because we don't... Well, I'm like, I'm, I'm partially panicking. Adam is straddling the fence as hard as he can right now, which is an oxymoron. It's painful. And, yeah. Um, and Arjun and I are going to panic, mostly because even if the offense fixes itself, it will come at the expense of the defense, given their personnel. Moving on to, I think we're all going to be in consensus on this because of what's happening as we record this, the Miami Heat, off to a 2-4 start after doubling down on last year's 31-10 and 10 finish. Hassan Whiteside only played on opening night, then missed five games with his uh, bruised knee. 
he's back as we're as we're recording this. He actually has a first half double double, so he he must be fine. But I'm still curious to think whether you think whether you guys think, and I'll throw it to Arjun first. This team is going to be even close to as good as their offseason moves suggest. And I don't mean that in the sense, are they going to win 30, 31 out of every 41 games that they play, but is this a bona fide playoff lock that is going to contend for that 4-5-6 spot in the Eastern Conference and sniff around, let's say, 44-45 wins? I would say yes. So, two questions, right? Um, or two thoughts. Uh, one, I'm totally in on them contending for that 4-5-6 or five or six spot. But I don't think that win total is going to be anywhere near what That's we fair. thought it was going into this year. Um, I mean, Whiteside's back now, uh, which should help things immensely. Uh, first half double-double, uh, like you said. Uh, but but Olenek, James, uh, James Johnson, I, I don't know what we're, what we're seeing from them, if anything. right? I, I don't think that their offseason, those contracts are really going to be living up to what we expected them to have i got killed when i questioned the james johnson contract and i wasn't even just this bullish non-fan of it i just thought you know hey this this guy's 30 years old had that one career year and you gave him 60 million dollars that's a, that's a pretty big risk um i agree with your white side point because they didn't without him uh, like they don't have this really true shot blocker and your best defensive rebounder is kelly olenek after that assuming you're not going to play jordan mickey or Carl white 25 minutes a game and that's just on off splits have always had an iffy relationship with Whiteside. I think that's more so because of the way the Heat run their team. Uh, Spolster doesn't necessarily believe in playing his five best players right out the gate, and then just the Heat Heat's bench traditionally is so effective compared to other benches that it's going to skew the data for some of their starters. Um, I'm wondering what I guess Adam thinks about that, but also where he kind of falls uh, with the Heat now after their two and four start. I'm going to panic a little bit about their regular season record because I think that they the, all the offseason moves are essentially buying into players who are coming off career-best performances or seasons. So James Johnson was finally unleashed. Deion Waiters finally uh, started playing, playing in a drive-and-kick offense that really suited what he needed to be doing. Uh, Kelly Olenek had the big game seven. You know, if, if you look at all these deals, like we're, we're evaluating them right after people are coming off of these these peak seasons or whatever they may be. So I think that they're they're naturally going to go through some struggles. The slow start has been partially because Whiteside's been hurt, and I think that we've overlooked how important Rodney Magruder was to this team last year as well. Like his his defense and steady play was pretty key during the second half of the 2016-17 season. He's out with a stress fracture right now. We don't really know when he's going to return. I'm not fully ready to panic on their overall prospects yet because the East is weak enough that they should still get into the playoffs, and Eric Spolstra remains one of the best coaches in the league. I have confidence in him making adjustments, finding a way to maximize the pieces, and a lot of these pieces are strange fits. Like You have a wing in Justice Winslow who is best facilitating now and still can't shoot. You have James Johnson who's a primary ball handler at the four. Like These things are going to take time. There are new pieces. They've got to make things work. So by the time Spo gets his hands on them throughout an entire season, when the playoffs roll around, I don't have any doubt they'll be where we thought they were. Their over-under coming into the season, I believe, was 43.5. Are you both going with now the definitive under on it? I'm, I'm taking under. I'm yeah. taking under, yep. I kind of go back and forth 
Uh, I think I'll go under at this point, too. I'm not panicking. I just think the East is going to be savage in the middle in the sense that everyone's going to take wins away from one another. And I'm kind of curious where you guys fall on this, too. Are you ready to just – what do you want to do with Justice Winslow if you're the Heat? Do you think he's a part of this long-term future? He's shooting a little bit better this year between 10 and 16 feet, and he's finishing better at the rim. I personally still don't trust him as this pick-and-roll orchestrator. Maybe that helps once it's on Whiteside's back. But you need – if you want this guy who's – he is a very good defender, and he's, he's just frisky and feisty on that end, but not – really being able to leverage any sort of jump shot by year three concerns me. And I'm just wondering, is he going to become, and should he become trade bait leading into February's deadline? I don't think so because he's such a unique weapon. And again, it comes back to Spolstra and me having confidence in his ability to deploy those kind of weapons. The big, the big stride that Winslow seems to have made this year beyond the passing is that he's finishing 72% of his shots from three, within three feet after 47% last year and 58% the year before. And he's making the touch shots from just outside that range, 57.1% from three to 10 feet. Like these are, these are big leaps. And if he's suddenly able to finish plays from that range and draws defenders around him, then he's going to work in this offense. What are you thinking, Arjun? Uh, I'm I'm with you on, the, on all of that. I I I think he's a good defender. He's going to be got to keep keep trusting him there. Um, but that jump shot just is ugly. I everything I just can't I can't sign off on on going forward with him. I can't sign off on going forward with him anywhere near the offensive side outside of three feet. Um, so yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I would. And he's so unique on defense, and I get it. And there's probably hope for him as this primary ball handler. I still, I like I said, I still just don't trust him to run pick and rolls or even be a secondary playmaker at this point for them. I would, if I was them, dangle him in trade talks leading into the trade deadline and try and move one of their big money deals with him and see what you could get, if anything. What are return. you looking to get in return for him? A pro- a way like is, to- is there a position of need? On this team, I, in, like, I would just pick up more wings if I'm them. They're, they're way too stocked in the front court right now uh, it, just because that James Johnson, Kelly Olenek, Hassan Whiteside, three-headed monster right there. Uh, you signed With Johnson. Without a waiting, too. Right. And I, I like Rodney Magruder, but what's going to happen when he comes back from his injury? Wayne Ellington's going to be a free agent this year. Deion Waiters isn't really a wing and isn't the solution to much. I, I would like to see them try and get a 3 and D guy somehow. I'm not saying those guys are available in excess, and you certainly wouldn't move Justice Winslow for a Wesley Matthews or a Kent Bazemore, but I'd, I'd dangle that and you know him in salary filler with what you have. Like I don't know who you'd be looking to move at the trade deadline of the players you have. No one's going to really want Deion Waiters. Maybe you could package him with Kelly Olynyk and, and get something, and I, I don't know the player that they would get, but I, I would at this point, with him going to be extension eligible this summer and then restricted free agency coming after, just given where he is with his jump shot, and I think how he has this ingrained offensive ceiling on him, no matter how much he blossoms elsewhere, because of the lack of a jumper, I, I would probably rather sell high while I could, assuming that's even an option at this point. Yeah, I, th- I think that's totally fair. I, I want to see him in a situation where he can succeed, and he has the coaching staff to do that now. So I, I wouldn't want to see him get caught up in a more traditional system. I would love to see if they could use him to get Jonathan Isaac from the Magic. That would be interesting. Get to me. 
I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it will either, but I'm just saying it would be really interesting. Norman Powell would be really interesting for this team. That trade would be weird now because he's poison pill after his extension. And I don't. Th- I, the Raptors don't really have this depth on the wings either that they can afford to give up and bring in, hey, let's bring another non-shooter into the fold to play next to the Yeah, team. I'm just running through options in my head, and it, it feels like he would be a really cool fit with this Miami offense. If they were ever looking to cut costs, let's just say the Wizards just totally bottom out. They're not totally bottom out, but they see that they have a ceiling. Like, can you use Justice Winslow as bait in a deal for one of the number two or number three guys on that team? Uh, Bradley Beal? Or probably Ron not. Porter? Probably not, no. Probably not. No. You know who would be fun on the Heat and they would never be traded, but Joe Ingles on Miami. <laughs> there are probably three to five yeah. teams in the league that could make Joe Ingles be Joe Ingles that he is now, or even a better version of Joe Ingles, and Miami is one of them. You're only saying this because Andy's not on the pod right now, right? Well, also, <laughs> so Andy did... That moment was brought to you by Andy Bailey. Yeah, Andy Bailey <laughs> sponsored this segment of the podcast. Well, so he did, Andy did kind of aggregate all the the player rankings from around the web, and of all these different websites, including NBA Math, including 538, ESPN... I think CBS, SB Nation was on there, all those sites, fan reg. Uh, I had, when I did Bleacher Reports, I had Joe Ingles ranked higher than any of the sites, and I, I don't believe it was particularly close. I had him as a top 70 player. I don't think anyone else had him as even a top 80. I'm proud of you. Me too, a little bit. Um, anyway, so... I think my biggest concern with Jingles on the Heat, though, would be what would the, the Heat announcers do when he made threes? Because, like, kaboom isn't really a sound that Jingle Bells makes or anything like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I also and Joe so that Ingles, can't happen. Yeah, and what do the Heat really? I guess he can play the three too. And Ingles, we've seen him defend shooting guards and point guards, but whatever. Uh, so no one's panicking for the Heat. I, however, am low on Justice Winslow, and we all think that they're gonna miss their over under mark. That 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 satisfy everybody. Yep. Continuing with the team, uh, panic meters. We go to the Timberwolves, and specifically their defense. They are, as we record this, allowing 113.3 points per 100 possessions. Per quarter. Uh, and they are terrible. They, it's, it's by, like, a wide margin. The Dallas Mavericks are 29th in defensive rating, and there's almost a three-point chasm between them. So are you, are you guys ready? And I'll throw it to Adam. Are you guys ready to panic over the Timberwolves' defense, knowing that they, they have Tom Thibodeau, they traded for Jimmy Butler, and I don't know that anyone pegged them to be a good to great defensive team this year, but they certainly weren't supposed to be the league's worst. Yeah, I mean, I think when when people are throwing out like win projections that are bordering on fifty wins, I don't I don't remember what their exact over under was. That you have to expect them to be at least competent on defense. So relative to those preseason expectations, yeah, I'm hitting the panic button on this one because the defense looks all sorts of atrocious. And it's so bad that you can't even peg the primary flaw. Like, is it Carl Anthony Towns who's, like, spinning like a top when he's in the middle of the scheme and has no idea where he's supposed to go and can't even raise his arms to contest some shots? Is it Andrew Wiggins not being able to contain dribble penetration and looking totally lost? The bench not having any idea where they're supposed to be within the tip of the schemes? Like, from, from the very front of the defense to the very back, there are problems. And... When there's no one easy solution, like how do you expect to fix what's just beyond a train wreck? Thoughts on that, Arjun? 
I, I'm not hitting the panic button here. Um, You're such a Jimmy Butler, Tom Thibodeau, Tosh Gibson I'm, homer. I was about to. I was about He's to. He's going to talk I'm about how Jimmy Butler's North. been sick and all that. Yeah, I'm a Bulls. I'm, I'm a fan of Bulls North. Tibbs, Tibbs, Todd, and, and Jimmy. But no, Jimmy's one of the elite defenders in this league. He's gonna. He can single handedly help a team defend well enough to not be the worst team, not be the worst defensive team in the league. Um, Jimmy's been sick. You're right. Uh, and once he, he's gonna once turn he, it back uh, on Adam. Like this is Adam. I want to, I want to respond to this one, Dan. <laughs> yeah, go, go, go ahead. No, once go. he's done, once he's done, I'm just calling the response. No, no, no. Now I just want to hear the response on the spot. The response on the spot is that if you look at what teams did with the with the San, against the San Antonio Spurs and Kawhi Leonard last year, like they were able to find a little bit of a success by isolating him in the corner and essentially playing four on four. If you do that against the Timberwolves, you're going to have even more success because they don't have the schemes in place or the personnel in place to cover up for that at all. Like Jimmy Butler is a great wing defender, but one great defender isn't capable of covering up for glaring liabilities all over the rest of the court, especially when it's coming at arguably one of the more non-essential positions because he's not protecting the interior or stopping a primary ball handler. That's fair, then. I have a question for you, then. Um, do you think that Carl Anthony Towns will ever become at least a slightly, or at least at least a below-average defender instead of just being horrifically bad? <laughs> Well, he's regressed since last season. I, When I watched him <laughs> yeah. last season, I thought, I was like, it seems like he's trying to make, and I, I went through this with Gorgie Jang, it seems like they're trying to make the right reads, but they just had nothing really on the perimeter, and you don't know, you, you're hesitant to leave your guy to rotate when you're near the rim, um, and your timing just gets thrown out of whack. So I, I was of the mind that now that you have Jimmy Butler there, uh, and you kind of have that rock, and Jeff Teague is okay, or as a bunch of people on this podcast this year have already called him perfectly fine. I thought his job would get easier, but he seems to... I don't want to call out his engagement because he seems like a player that really cares, but he just he's chasing defensive rebounds sometimes. He's not even trying to contest shots at the rim. He's more focused on boxing guys out. Uh, he's not particularly reliable in space, and I don't think Taj Gibson's a good defensive partner for him. I think Gorgie Jang would probably be a better partner, even though the, both of them were bad collectively in the front court. I think a lot of it, to wrap that up, has to do with the personnel around him, and one good to really good perimeter defender in Jimmy Butler isn't going to make his assignments any easier, and, and we're kind of seeing that indecision carry over and, and get a little bit more exacerbated this year. If you'd asked me the original question, Arjun, two months ago, I would have probably said, yes, I believe in Kat's ability to finally figure it out on defense and, and make the most of his athletic gifts. But yeah, after, after watching the opening salvo of this season, like I, I'm, I'm going to reverse course there because the awareness just isn't there. It's And for a team that has Taj Gibson and Carl Anthony Towns in the middle, they should not be allowing the third most field goal attempts within five feet of the basket that's absolutely inexcusable and not only that but they're the worst team in the league at defending those shots yeah i mean at at some point what was the point i'm sorry sorry, (laughs) but what was the point of bringing in taj gibson and paying him all this money if like he's not gonna help there i just i mean he shouldn't be a power forward it doesn't help that they're gonna pull towns or gibson away from the rim on any one possession but it's just like that shouldn't happen it's almost like coaches shouldn't be making personnel decisions. Keep, we we got to edit those name out of here. your mouth. 
<laughs> no, I mean, yeah, without the defense, like, the offense is going to be fine. I've been really impressed with the growth that we've seen from Andrew Wiggins this year, like, as a three-point shooter and, and being able to, to function in some other areas. But without the defense, like, th- this is not a team that's going to get through the gauntlet in the West. No, I think we can all we can safely say that we're all going to panic about their defense, and, and they've given us just cause. To, and they're not. And you know what? They don't have that punch off the bench. That was always going to be an issue. But the the hope was that the starters, or maybe if you run six deep, like you would be okay. But the bench isn't going to provide them with the defensive punch either. I do, however, think I don't think Carlton Towns is ever going to be the an anchor to a top tier defense. And that's where people, when they were in the rush to compare him to Anthony Davis. That's probably where they missed the mark because Davis was always uh, more switchy than Towns and just a more feared guy at the rim. But I do think if you give him two good defenders around him, they don't both have to be Jimmy Butler level, but if you have two distinct pluses on the perimeter on the defensive end, I think that's where you'll see that he'll be more of a controlled and alert and effective defender, and that's my take on him, is I think he could be average, and that's not, when you're as good as he is on offense, that's awesome. Is it is it too early to say that we all drastically overrated him this offseason? Because, I mean, I think the consensus was that he was a top 20 lock, probably one of the 15 best players on the verge of top 10 status, and I'm, I, don't, I don't think he's there when he's become this much of a one-way player. And I think people locked him into the top three center, too. And without his defense, you can't, without a defense at the center spot, you can't really say that. Yeah, I would probably say that we overrated him. I mean, it's just seven games into the season, but to, but to show regression on the defensive end. Uh, and, and it's that. Yeah. I mean, that's the trouble with small samples in general, is like you, you can make meaningful conclusions from them so long as you're evaluating them properly, right? So when you're seeing that kind of trend and it's happening consistently and it makes sense why it's happening, Okay. And I think we can buy into that a little bit. Okay, so quick answers from both of you. We'll start with Arjun. Three years from now, Carl Anthony Towns is a train wreck on defense, close to average defender, average defender, above average defender, excellent defender. Which one of those? Three years from now. Uh, you missed one as just straight up below average, and I'm taking that. He's never. I don't think he's ever going to become an average defender. Well, close league. to average would be... All right, so below average. What would you say? Below average. What would you say? Average? Arjun took the words out of my mouth there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go average. Look at me being the optimist. Of this I game. hope you're right. Yeah, that would be awesome if you're right. Because everyone wants, we, we want everyone to succeed, right? Always. <laughs> Do we? Except Dan. That's fair. I get that yeah. in my Twitter feed a lot, so I appreciate you guys continuing this on the podcast. Um, let's go to, let's throw to, to some disappointing players, although this kind of runs with a bigger theme on the team itself but i've been very disappointed in chris middleton and we all talked about how thon maker got pulled from the starting lineup he was kind of the ceremonial starter anyway jason kidd gave him a quick hook so subbing in john henson for him isn't the biggest deal but he kind of just showed flashes of of just being a floor spacer at the five and could protect the rim a little bit last year even though he was super spindly and remains super spindly uh, but Middleton, I had him as probably top 35, top 40 player entering this season, and he has just been inefficient as as hell from the field. And I'm wondering, we'll start with Arjun this time again as well. Uh, Chris Middleton, you ready to panic, or, or should we all chill out? I'm, I'm ready to panic. And inefficient, uh, perfect, uh, perfect example of that inefficiency. I mean, his effective field goal percentage right now is 42%. His average, his career average is somewhere 
just north of fifty. Um, he's he is he looks bad. He looks bad on the offensive end. Um, except at the free throw line, looks great at the free throw line right now compared to the compared to <laughs> compared to the um the, his career. Uh, but but I'm I'm ready to panic if if he can't figure out this offense. I mean, we've all seen the the TPA charts, right? You've see, seen that. Seen Gian- Giannis needs help. Giannis needs help and on, on the offensive end. And if Middleton's, Middleton's not going to give it to him, I I don't know. I'm ready to panic on this one. It's uh, before we go to Adam. It's it's impressively bad how mediocre the Bucks are, despite having a top three, top five player in Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's impressively so, problematic, but we'll we'll throw it. We'll throw I, it to Adam. So 41.4, 40.7, 39.6, and 43.3. Those are his three-point percentages over the last four years. And then it's 20.7% this year. That's not sustainable. He's, he's going to start hitting shots. His role has been slightly different this year where they're asking him to be more of a facilitator. He's, he's averaging more assists, but it's come with an uptick in turnovers. Um, so I think that as, as his role stabilizes, as he... He starts regressing back to that career average from beyond the arc that he's going to be just fine. This guy is too talented. He's too good on both ends of the court, and he's too important on the Bucks to, to, to really panic. And I also want to take a moment to shout out at Living Hitty Corey on Twitter, who had one of the greatest responses to one of our TPA charts that I've seen. He uh, he photoshopped the Bucks TPA chart. Um, with some some red red lines to separate everybody, and had everybody but Giannis on one side in the G League, then an entire yawning chasm labeled NBA, and then Giannis all by himself labeled as Giannis, and it's fantastic. Shout out to him. I, you know why I'm not worried about Middleton aside from the fact that I just think he's super good. Uh, he's still shooting pretty good around the rim, over 61 percent inside three feet. You have to give that to him, but. I'm wondering. I don't necessarily. Not that I don't understand the Bucks' offense, but I know you you don't have all this floor spacing. But just shoot more damn threes. They're in the bottom half of three point attempt rate, and you have Middleton right now is on pace to take more than a quarter of his shots between ten and sixteen feet, which would be a career high mark. Let's not. You know, don't do that. I, I don't. I, he's shooting. He's shooting better than forty five percent on those looks. So like, part of me kind of gets it. And if that's the shots the defenses are going to give you, fine. But shoot more threes, and maybe he'll work himself through the. You know, you don't want to say that when he's shooting under twenty one percent as of now from deep. But he just seems like a player that's going to work himself through it. He's still an excellent playmaker. He's never going to be the guy that you want necessarily creating his own shot all the time or the guy you go to in crunch time but you have Giannis Antetokounmpo for that Uh, I would probably like to see more of a two-man game between those two to see if that maybe helps him but his struggles they're they're on him and they just seem like he's played seven games they're a slump but they also seem like symptoms of the personnel that's around the Bucks right now if they can't generate consistent floor spacing yeah Giannis is going to be a god because Giannis isn't human and he's going to be efficient and he's going to score all these points and he's going to be great but Middleton and some of these other guys don't necessarily have that luxury, and it's different when you're being asked to do as much as, as Middleton elsewhere. Brogdon doesn't carry the same offensive burden on offense, nor does Tony Snell, so the looks that they're going to get from three, they're going to be inherently easier and more wide open because more of them are coming off the catch. I'm far more disappointed and far more worried about Thon Maker than Chris Middleton because I'm, I'm not quite sure what Thon is good at. Right. 
I am right there with the you. Appeal with, the appeal with him was the versatility and the ability to potentially contribute in every single area and the upside across the board. But you have to be good at something to get minutes in the NBA and to, to be valuable in your minutes, and he's not there yet. Not to say he couldn't be, but he's not there yet. Their defense has been trash with him on the floor, which is just... And that lineup that they were running out to as the starting lineup, they were juggernauts statistically last year over a fairly large sample. I had high hopes for them. But I'm with you. I don't know what Thon is anymore. I know Bleach Report's Howard Beck wrote he could be kind of like the secret unicorn last year, and I don't know that anyone was fully on that bandwagon, including Beck himself. It was just basically the Bucks saying this is what we want to do with Thon. I, it doesn't, he hasn't shown signs that he can be that player this season. Again, he's a sophomore. We're seven games into the season, but I wonder how he responds to being moved to the bench, even though he was a ceremonial starter to begin with. I mean, he's only 20 years old, too. Like, he has plenty of time to figure it out. But if the Bucks were relying on him to contribute this season, that was a mistake. I just, for me, oh, well, go ahead, Archer. Sorry. Oh, I was, I was, Adam, I was just going to ask, you, you don't think, you don't think he's going to turn around this season? You think we're going to have to wait for it, see it? To yeah, see I think this is, I think this is a slower development than we expected. And we, we kind of bought into him looking pretty good during the playoffs and very limited run. It's going to be interesting to see how this kind of affects the Jabari Parker situation when he comes back, going to restricted free agency, because I I fell in the camp that you didn't want to pay him a bunch of long-term money, and maybe not that you should cut him loose, but you sh- you could probably try trading him, um, signing him, and then moving him later if his deal wasn't ridiculous. But Thonmaker was one of the reasons why, because if you have him at center and you're going to have all these other options, Giannis can play some four, and you'll just have these other guys like Toledovich already there. Uh, maybe you can get by, but if Thonmaker isn't going to be that versatile defender, at least in a floor spacer on the offensive end, at least one of the two, you might just, if Jabari Parker's healthy and doing what he did last season, you kind of have to resign him so that you can steer into some sort of identity, and he gives you the offensive identity with Atentacupo. I'm hoping that Thon's struggles are also also kind of produce a silver lining in that they have to play John Henson more. Because you want Greg Monroe as your, your sixth man coming off to lead that second unit. And, you know, this what if this is what they paid John Henson for? You know, he's he's kind of floundered away off that bench and they've never really trusted him. But, you know, he's he is the versatile and, and long, lanky defender that you were just talking about. Like if, if he can hit any sort of mid range jumper, then we could see a post hype breakout from him. So we're all ready to – Adam and I will not panic over Middleton. Thon Maker, we're both panicking on a little bit. Short-term panic. Short-term panic. Arjun, you are you are panicking over Middleton, and what are your thoughts on Thon? Panic or chill? I'm, I'm ready to chill on Thon. Again, 20, 20-year-old kid. I think he'll figure it out. Slow development, but I don't think I don't think we need to see it immediately. I don't think we need to see immediate reaction uh, results. I think he's going to be fine. So, slow t- so short-term panic as well, then? Everyone is short-term panic on, on <laughs> your Your words, not mine. Yep. <laughs> no, they're your words, too, now. Um, this one, I don't even want to give my verdict on this because I've been accused of being a Harrison Barn hater by, by websites. Not even just people, by websites. Uh, so, uh, where do you guys fall on Harrison Barnes' slow start? He is shooting under 38% from the floor, under 33% from three-point range. He doesn't look like this isolation sensation that we saw last year where yes the Mavericks' offensive splits weren't great with him even when you broke it down by month or quarter of the year they always seemed to go back and forth but he looked like hey that four-year 94 million dollar deal whatever it was that wasn't really 
that wasn't that bad of a contract. Are you, Adam, going to panic or chill on Harrison Barnes? I'm chill on Harrison Barnes. I think that we're going to see a bounce back from him throughout the year because he was he was kind of stealthily good last year. I think he was a lot better than some of the advanced metrics would show just because of the role he was asked to fill in Dallas. And again, I, I think that as is the case with so many slow starts in the NBA, shifting personnel is a really big deal. And I'm not sure it's it's recognized as such to the extent that it is. So all of a sudden, you're throwing out Dennis Smith, who's a pretty ball-dominant point guard, and you're taking the ball out of Barnes's hands and asking him to fill an entirely different role. You know, like you, like you said in the intro to this one, he was an isolation-heavy guy. He thrived there. He was able to abuse power forwards. He was able to bully small forwards. And he, that hasn't been his game so far this year, and he's missing some open shots. So they're going to get back to doing what works best for him eventually because Rick Carlisle is an in-game genius. So I'm not really particularly worried about him, um, especially once they figure out what they're going to do with Dirk, who I'm far more worried about. Uh, you know, they're, tr- they're trying to play Dirk and Nerland's Noel, um, if they're even trying to play Noel, because that situation is bizarre. But that's taking Barnes away from his strengths as well. So all these factors are kind of converging to, to emphasize a, a weak start that, that isn't really going to be sustainable. What say you, Arjun? I'm I'm right there I'm right there with you Adam uh, I'm I'm ready to chill on Barnes I think he will be fine I think uh, Carlisle I've trust Carlisle Carlisle throughout the season um, and I mean it's 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 a Mavs team in the West uh, I'm not I don't think I don't know what we're really expecting from this team overall but I think Barnes will be able to lead this lead them and and I I think he will bounce back especially uh, in his shooting. It's a weird transition season, right, where they're trying to figure out what his role is, what Dirk can continue to do, how they're going to work in Smith. So everything's changing. So I'm going to Come pan- on, hater. I'm going to panic. Just Come because- on, hater. Right, look, Harrison Barnes was legitimately very good last year. Like, he's just – when I was scouting him for Bleacher Report's NBA 100 – Barely half of his baskets came off assists, and 17.8% of all his attempts came late in the shot clock with between four and seven seconds left on it. That was the tops among 365 players who played in at least 10 games last year. He shot 48.2% on those looks, and he was a stud in isolation. Uh, Like, only basically DeMar DeRozan and Kyrie Irving were better. This year, I I get the adjustment to having more Dirk, to having... Dennis Smith Jr., but a larger share of his offensive possessions are coming in isolation this year than last year, and he's shooting under 30% right now, and I think you have to ask, because he was never an ISO scorer in Golden State because he was never given the opportunity, is he still going to be able to shoot above average in those situations? That being said, maybe I'll go short-term panic here just because I think the Mavericks could do better with using him off the ball. He's a good shooter at the rim still. He's shooting over 70% inside three feet of the basket right now. And if you run him kind of off the catch more, maybe you have these cuts that are designed for him, and maybe you just try and work on driving kick game with him more. And I don't know then if you're dealing with this existential identity crisis of, well, we signed him to be this number one option. Is he going to be happy not going back to his Golden State days, but to kind of come off the ball even more than he is right now as a result of the Dennis Smith Jr. signing? So I think the Mavs, I'm going to panic unless the Mavs are prepared to kind of make 
a bunch more adjustments to their offense and recognize that with Dennis Smith Jr. here, we can't try and prop up Barnes's usage the way it was last season. I mean, his usage rate is down by one point this year, and that, considering with Dirk healthy, considering you have Dennis Smith Jr., that's not really a lot. And again, given that more of his uh, offensive possessions in terms of frequency are coming as isolations, that might just be something that you need to get away from. Dan, I do have one question for you, though, and that's uh, do you think he has a good contract, a bad contract, or the worst contract? He has a bad contract, but it's not the worst contract. It's just, it's a bad contract. Who is who is trading for Harrison Barnes right now? Who's trading for that contract? No one's going to. And I love how this is this is what really grinds my gears is in my Peter Griffith boys. What? Like, we can evaluate bad contracts like in different salary cap climates because the NBA is so fluid and part of the NBA, yes, is it's luck, but it's also projecting things. And teams whiffed on the summer of 2016 when they gave out these big money deals. Harrison Barnes shouldn't have been a max player. I get the sentiment if you wanted to overpay him just to harm Golden State. It kind of rings hollow when you know that Golden State wanted to get rid of him for Kevin Durant anyway. And other teams might have given him that contract. We don't know. Put him on another team. It's still a bad deal. Who is trading for Harrison Barnes? I like Harrison Barnes. I think he's under. He could be underrated defensively because of his switchability and sturdiness in the post. But can we just not mince words here? Harrison Barnes, in any salary cap climate of any given year, is on a bad contract, and we're allowed to say that even though it's not 2016 anymore. And if I didn't care about my podcast, Mike, I'd throw it on the ground right now and walk away. Dan, just smash the soapbox. <laughs> Just just smash the panic button and get your Twitter engagements up. I'm just gonna I'm gonna go short term <laughs> panic or panic unless the Mavs really do make some closer to wholesale tweaks to his role. Is that unfair? Am I being unfair? No, that's that's fine. I think if I have to summarize my position, I'll panic on him being like a superstar or a max contract player. But I'm totally chill on him being a productive guy who can kind of lead a competitive team. But you're fine in the way that they're using him now and the way that the Dallas Mavericks offensive offense excuse me is running like you're not like you don't see it as unless there's kind of big time chains that he'll be good you just so you, need personnel changes. you need personnel and schematic changes but they're just trying to figure everything out right now like dallas isn't going to win a title they're not going to make the playoffs this year they're not going to be that competitive until they Hashtag move on from free wesley matthews <laughs> and berea too probably but i mean the role is changing. They're figuring out what he can do. I don't think we're ever going to see a, a, a replication of what he did last year in that breakout season, but that's fine. So I'm going I'm going panic. Adam's going panic if you think he's going to be a superstar. Don't if you're fine with him being a role player. Arjun, you are in the not I mean, panic like, camp as well. Somewhere in between going. role player and star, I would say. I think Adam's about to set the record for hedges in one podcast. <laughs> Well, I don't. I don't think it's ever as easy as a straight panic or a straight chill for these situations. I believe in nuance, Dan. Yeah, Adam, this, this is a hot take isn't culture. Here for nuance. Yeah, we're this here for hot. This takes. is a hot take culture. Hot take culture. Be strong in your opinion. All right, I'll keep that in mind. I mean, I, I kind of hedged in my response too. I think he'll be fine if the Ma- if the Mavericks kind of change the way they run their offense outside of Dennis Smith Jr. Uh, All right, I'll be way more hot takey on the next one. <laughs> Oh, you are going to... Well, actually, you won't be. John Wall is going to be the next one. Okay. I'm going to throw it to you because you said you're going to be more hot takey on this one, so take it away. Yeah, I mean, I think that based on the shooting regression we've seen from him and him not really being able to figure out 
how he can best assert himself on defense that John Wall's reign as an elite starting point guard is over and that they should probably bench him for Thomas Sadoransky. It's as simple as that. <laughs> wow, the Tim Frazier shade in that answer? Off the chart. <laughs> it was a two-for-one special. No, I, I think I think Wall is going to be fine. I mean, there's... We haven't really seen any real reasons to worry about him. He's experimenting with things on defense, and he's still going to be a top-five point guard and one of the absolute best players in the East. And Thomas should stay firmly on the bench. I think I think John's going to be a great role player for the for the Wizards because <laughs> um, clearly they have another superstar in the mix right now to take over the, the reins. <laughs> uh you can print that. You can print that. <laughs> can we just say that it's not a hot take that John Wall has not been the Wizards' best player so far, though? Because that's very clearly been Otto Porter. No, I think everyone, every single Wizards fan, every single NBA fan knows that Otto Porter is the freaking truth. Um, I, except for John Wall, who was all on that Paul George. <laughs> he just like he completely crapped on Otto Porter twice this summer. The fir- the Paul George well, I think thing. That's the biggest issue now. What's is that? that the wall is so shaken by Porter being there that he can't play well anymore, and they need to trade him? Yeah, that's that's probably what needs to happen. Also, you know what would probably help Wall's game and just the Wizards in general? Could they stop shooting so many darn long twos? Like what what happened? Like this team, their shot selection seems so much better last year, and now they've they've kind of reversed. John Wall's taking twenty eight percent of his shots between sixteen feet and the three point line, and he's hitting a whopping thirty three point three percent of them. So. Just to clarify, you're saying that a Scott Brooks team showed a lot of growth at the beginning and then stopped figuring out how to maximize their players? <laughs> Maybe. Where have you seen that one before? Maybe. Well, Marquise Morris being back now changed this at all? Like, does that change your perception of this team? I mean, Kelly Oubre Jr. has been playing pretty damn good. Yeah, I mean, it just adds to their depth. Like, that's that's been the biggest yeah. flaw. And I, I think... I'm assuming we're all in agreement that Wall is going to be fine. I have which a means about that. Okay, believe, well, we'll come back to that. We'll I come back he'll to that, be more but, than fine. Fair enough. So, assuming that this starting five is just as elite as it was last year, where it was legitimately one of the most dangerous lineups in the NBA, especially among high-usage ones, the biggest key for them is depth. So if they can get some production out of Tim Frazier and Sadoransky and and Kelly Oubre is is a viable piece, whether he's in the starting lineup and pushing Markeith Morris to the bench or vice versa. Like when those guys are healthy, and let's include Jason Smith here, who's a legitimately great mid-range shooter. As soon as those pieces are all in place, Washington is going to be fine. I I'm just going to ride the coattails of what you said. John Wall is going to be. He's not going to shoot cruddy percentages in transition all year. I I don't know what we could say about his shot selection, but he still basically reaches the rim almost whenever he wants. The Wizards. I mean, he doesn't have to play Lonzo Ball every night, who just kept stripping him in transition as he tried to shoot. Like that's the key. Arjun's ready to panic though, right? I want to. I want to just for the, his uh, just for the slander of Otto Porter. Well, I'm ready to smash the panic button. <laughs> so I guess he would be if if we kind of break it down a little bit further. Are you panicking relative to the expectations he set for himself this year? He called himself the best two-way point guard in the league, said that he's the best shot-blocking point guard in the history of the NBA. Uh, We probably know that he wants to win the MVP award. So relative to those expectations that he set for himself, would you panic or are you still just in chill mode? Yeah, I mean, he's setting LeVar Ball-esque expectations right now. Um, 
no, we, I, I'm not really paying. I, I don't think I, for, for his expectations. Yeah. I'm ready to hit the panic button, but I don't think any, I, I can't imagine there was anyone who actually agreed with him. Um, and thought he was, he was who he said he was. That was very Dennis Smith of you. I know. <laughs> yeah. Wait, was that the right name? Uh, Dennis Green. Dennis, Dennis Green. Green. Old Cardinals yeah. coach, right? Cardinals coach, yeah. This is why we're doing NBA math and not NFL math. <laughs> well, that was an awkward moment from everybody. Uh, we're, all not, we're all not panicking for John Wall, so that's the verdict here. We only have two left. We're going to move on to Kyle Lowry, who had a pretty good game the other night. It wasn't great, but it was better. He is just not playing well overall, though. Shooting under 37% from the floor, under 34% from three. He's averaging 13.5 points per game, uh, which would be his lowest total since 2012-2013. Are you, Adam, panicking or chilling about Kyle Lowry's struggles to this point? This is the toughest one for me, I think. Um, part of me... Part of me wants to say that we should just chill because as as soon as Dwayne Casey reminds him that it's not the playoffs right now, he'll just be fine. But I think I, I lean more towards being a little bit panicked because he's a 31-year-old point guard and we've seen so many guys at this position start to drop off a little bit because production is predicated upon being able to create separation. And it's just not quite there as much this year I mean he's he's thrived for the last couple of years on these pull-up jumpers and keeping defenders off balance and he hasn't quite commanded the respect from them that he's had in previous years and it's affected all portions of his game so yeah I, I, I'll lean more towards panic here and I had to kind of talk myself through that one yeah I'm fully I mean I echo whatever Adam said. I mean, except I'm fully ready to just hit the panic button. Right? Yeah, just in general. I just agree. I'm a yes man. Um, no, I, I, like you said, 31-year-old point guard, this is this is what we've seen historically is where things start to drop. So I, I'm ready to hit the panic button on, on Larry, regardless of his game uh, uh, earlier this week. You know why I'm not ready to hit the panic button? Because... Yes, well, that, and just because some of these things, one, he's not going to shoot um, under 40% on catch-and-shoot looks all year, but more for me is that he has such a profound impact on the game, even when his scoring averages are in the toilet, that he's a guy who's going to work on defense. Defenses, Opposing defenses are still going to respect his three-point range, and that's going to open up the floor for everybody, including DeMar DeRozan when he drives to the basket, and I still think that even if we want to account for regression because of his age and what we know about kind of undersized point guards at this point in their career, he's still their most important, most valuable player, and I don't think he'll fail to live up to that billing. DeMar DeRozan is the more likely all-star, and it's very encouraging some of the returns we've seen with him in the lineups without Kyle Lowry to this point, but I still think Kyle Lowry is their most important player, if that makes any sense, and I don't think he's going to fail when we're looking back at these tepid takes uh, a couple months down the line. I don't think he's going to have failed to live up to that billing. Okay, I have a legitimate kind of hot take. I think it's pretty hot because it's the Eastern Conference, but I don't think Lowry's going to make the All-Star team this year. Yeah, He's not going to get voted in as a starter, which means it's going to have to come from the coaches. And there are too many players who have 
who have surprised and are going to get rewarded for those surprises. I don't see him getting in over someone like Bradley Beal or even a Tobias Harris or Victor Oladipo. Or maybe Dirk. Can we just talk about Kemba Walker just really quick, just for five seconds? I mean, he's just awesome. It doesn't matter. The past three years, it doesn't matter what kind of lineup he's in. He's just, he's godly. And he's still underrated. He's, how is I would just like to say that I called that one while he was in college. It was all over that one. I don't know that I called anything, but it did seem like any time he had the ball in his hands in crunch time and, and attempted to step back like long two, that it went in. I'm pretty sure. Just, I'm pretty just sure call Ethan Noroff and ask how I felt about Kemba while he was at UConn. His defense has been so good the past three years, too. Maybe the past four years or whatever. But um, so, I am not panicking on Kyle Lowry. You two are panicking on Kyle Lowry, which seems, I don't know. A little ridiculous, but we'll move on to our last topic, which is which I think is is the best one, just because it seems so much fun. The Sixers is transparency, um, specifically with regard to Markel Fultz, and maybe it's not even transparency, but just the sip the Sixers is method of operation. You go through a missed season with Ben Simmons last year. Joel Embiid didn't play for his first two seasons because of injuries. You have Markel Fultz who injured his shoulder, changed his shooting form because of it, and you were trying to make him play through it. Why? After the experiences you had with your other two cornerstones, what, what, what were you thinking? So let's throw this to Arjun. Are you panicking? I, I guess the topic here is are you chilling or panicking, one, on Markel Fultz's fit future with the Sixers at all? And two, to make this a two-part thing, do you think the Sixers are ever going to resemble even a half transparent or organization that seems like it's going to make the right decisions with regard to their players' injuries? I actually really like Fultz, one. Um, I think he's going to be assuming this. I mean, I think this medical stuff is going to figure itself out. Um, he's going to come back healthy, and I think he's going to be good for the Sixers. Um, but so not panicking on that, but I'm ready to fire everyone. In the entire Sixers organization, <laughs> just fire everyone. This is—it's garbage. It's—it's. It's, I don't. I don't understand you. Your last two stud, like two stud draft picks, Embiid, Embiid, and uh, and Simmons. You know, you know they had injury history. Then you draft Markel Fultz, and you're gonna give fans and like, other teams and whatever. You're gonna give everyone else the same runaround. Like that's not that's that's not right. Just fire everyone. That seems that seems totally fair and totally even keeled. Adam, we're yeah, not so, mad. I'm not mad online no. at all. <laughs> Never. Um, the Fultz thing doesn't piss me off quite as much as it does Arjun, just because based on how this organization has handled injuries in the past, I genuinely don't think that they would have played him if they thought that it could get worse. Some There's a difference between being injured and being hurt, and there's a difference between playing through an injury that could get worse and and sucking up the pain and trying to play anyway. So Fultz was not put in a position to succeed and they should have been more transparent, but I genuinely don't think that they would have put him on the court if they thought anything could get worse. I am, however, ready to hate on them for an entirely different reason, and that's this bizarre Jaleel Okafor situation. Uh, so much of what happens with young players is predicated upon their ability to get put in the right situation. I think if you go through the the, the list of big-time busts in the NBA draft, that if you put them in a different organization, a lot of them might have been able to find success. 
So for Okafor, who is only 21 years old, was very highly regarded coming out of college, played very well at Duke, has a defined set of skills that could at least make him a useful bench piece to get completely buried, not traded, not bought out, no option picked up. I think the Sixers are treating him very poorly and and far too poorly. If all you're going to get back for him is a late second round pick with a bunch of protections, give him a chance to play elsewhere. He did, he did nothing to deserve the way he's been treated there. I agree with everything you said on Okafor. I'm not going to panic about Fultz's future either. I'm not going to give the Sixers as much leeway on that front, though, as you sort of did, not that you were commending them. But the fact that Fultz's agent, Raymond Brothers, went on record to try and talk about how much pain his client was in when the Sixers had a day earlier, or Brett Bound two days earlier, and said they're not worried about it getting any worse. There was a miscommunication on some level, or the Sixers dropped the ball somewhere, because that doesn't happen. If anything... It seems like Raymond, that his agent was trying to make a point because that's something you give anonymously, not go on the record for, to go against the organization. And then to know that he was shut down for three games immediately after that and to then basically know he was out indefinitely shortly after that, that something was wrong there, and they, they screwed up. I'm not going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm wondering if they're ever going to be transparent. They were like this with Ben Simmons with regard to whether he would miss the entire season. And then, of course, with Joel Embiid, it's always just cloaks and daggers for them, and I don't, I don't understand it. Like, do you, it's think about how much would be solved, and the Knicks are like this too. Sometimes just give like real updates. Think about how much that solves. Yeah, I think there's the transparency is lacking, and it shouldn't be lacking. But I think there's a difference between being transparent and being reckless. I don't think that they were reckless here. Uh, I I wonder the extent to which them shutting him down after all this stuff leaked out was saving face and giving him a chance to get fully healthy, not because playing while hurt was going to wreck his career, but he just wasn't good and he had to deal with so much media backlash. It's not a matter of making the shoulder worse or it wouldn't have healed if he was playing on it, but you're giving him that out now. So yes, please be more transparent, but I, I, I don't think that they handled him playing the wrong way. Can we all breathe a sigh of relief for his uh, free throw shot? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Comes back, uh, when he comes back this season, do we think that he's going to, rookie of the year seems like it's already been won. Do you think that he's going to play like, let's say one of the five best rookies? If he's healthy, I do. Me too. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think he's a top five rookie if he's healthy. Easily. It's bizarre how quickly perception shifted. I don't know who's is there. Are there people actually worried about his future? That's why I didn't even want to roll with him as the topic. Like, is it is we're worried about like Markel Fultz an actual thing? It definitely seems like it. Well, I almost think if that's just like a perception thing because of the fancy medical terms, and it just sounds maybe it sounds worse than it actually might be. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but Markel Fultz is going to be fine. So I think that's a good place to wrap up this podcast. Markel Fultz, the number one pick in this past NBA draft, is going to be good at basketball if he is healthy. Those are our hot takes. We are not panicking over him. Um, that will Dan, do- I do, I do want to throw in my honorable mention for, uh, for I'm hitting the panic button hard uh, on the Bulls. They're not bad enough. Uh, losing the Hawks well, or beating the Hawks was an incredible disappointment, and I just want to say I expect better from them. 
So you're panicking over the Bulls' ability to tank properly. Yes. That's 69 points feels like way too many. That's fair. I'm there. Um, yeah, if, no disagreements here. If you want to get at Arjun to talk about his Bulls tanking takes, among all the other piping hot takes he delivered tonight, follow him on Twitter at ArjunBug21. That's A-R-J-U-N-E Bug21. You can follow Adam at Frommel09. That's F-R-O-M-A-L-09. You can follow me at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. Please follow the NBA Math official account at NBA underscore math. You can get at us on the official Hardwood Knox account as well at Hardwood Knox. Please leave a subscription, leave us a rating on iTunes, uh, tell your friends about us, leave reviews, even if they're mean ones. We just like to hear how we're doing. Since Andy's here, there will be no shout-out to you-know-who, but we will continue to give the shout-out to Kyle Anderson. Until next time. I never planned on losing my job, but we all know life can change in an instant. And losing my family's health insurance was an even tougher pill to swallow. So I looked into Cobra, but too pricey. Then I found out I could enroll through Covered California, where I was able to choose from good health insurance companies I've actually heard of. I even got help paying for it. There's a limited time to qualify after losing your insurance, so check out CoveredCA.com today. Covered California. It's more than just health care. It's life care. Five-hour tea with caffeine from green tea leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five-hour tea. Caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight. From the makers of five-hour energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.